left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you are doing. Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Passive Investing in Private Syndications. This is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, you can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Hey, left fielders, you know our partner TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the open tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse Access to take advantage of deal webinars and open tribes. I think there's going to be some duress in the asset class for the same reasons there's going to be duress in multifamily and industrial and retail. People were buying deals with untenable, unreasonable underwriting assumptions. They were buying deals with floating rate debt, short-term bridge debt. They're going to grow in OI. They're going to refinance into a fixed rate loan at a three and a half. Full proceeds are going to be heroes. Well, no one thought, including us, uh, that rates would go up as high as they did and as quickly as they did. If you originated a floating rate loan back in 2021, for example, your interest rates probably tripled. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hey, everybody. This is Jay Scott, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. 
I'm excited today to have Jacob Vanderslice with us. He is the co-founder of Van West Partners and has been investing in real estate since 2005. He leads the investor relations team and the launch of private funds to raise capital for self-storage acquisitions. Jacob, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, good to see you. Thanks for having us on. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's great to it's great to hear from you. I know it's kind of tough to get this scheduled, so thanks for your patience. The first question I always ask is, you know, what what's your journey? How did you get into real estate? How did you find self storage? And then how did you find yourself working for an operator? Yeah, um, well, we're, we're, I'm actually a principal, so um, I uh, for better or for worse, I work for myself. I haven't been paid for a long time for that reason, um, but I. Uh, I started doing fix and flips in um, about 2005 into 2006. Uh, I was a career firefighter. I had a bunch of time on my hands. I only worked 10 days a month. And for many years in our real estate careers, we did mainly residential. Um, we got into commercial real estate uh, back in 2013, 2014. We did some adaptive reuse retail. Um, <clears throat> we've done town home development. We've done some multifamily. We kind of covered a lot of the uh, food groups in real estate. Um, we looked at self-storage for quite a while leading up to 2015. We like the fact that it's been uh, historically recession-resistant, downside-protected. It's more scalable um, than buying and selling houses or historic preservation retail projects. Um, so we did our first deal in 15, and uh, we didn't expect to, over time, become primarily and exclusively a storage owner-operator. Um, but a deal or two and then deal three and deal four and they went okay. We kind of kept going. Um, and uh, it's a business that's been good to us uh, really ever since we got into it back in 15. And and how did you go from, you know, firefighter flipper to realizing that, that you wanted to kind of scale up? So you started in 2005 and six, I think you said, and those were kind of the end of the good times originally, right? And then there was some tough markets there and then and oh, you yeah. came through it. So were you doing your your flipping and all of that through all of those bad times or or, or how, how did you get to being more commercial than residential? Yeah, we, we survived the downturn and uh, those were some brutal years. And it was kind of this, um, this tale of two markets. We had the deals that we had bought leading up to the financial crisis that were just sucking wind and lost a ton of value. Um, and then we were buying deals at the trustee sales during the depths of the financial crisis. And we were, we were paying pricing that was, uh, you know, a half, maybe even a third of what it was a couple of years ago. Um, so we know what it's like to go through turmoil. We know what it's like to, to fail. And, uh, those were some informative years, uh, kind of a baptism by fire. Um, and we, you know, scale is not always necessarily better, right? Everyone wants to be bigger and better and have more scale. Um, and we scaled up our single family operation pretty heavily. I mean, we did, um, I think our, our peak, we did about 400 deals between over an 18 month period, really mid 13 to kind of into 14. Um, but we concluded over time that, uh, and it took us a lot of years to sort of land on this conclusion that that business was overly transactional. Um, we were buying, making better and selling too often and too quickly, and we wanted to shift our thesis to be, be more long-term uh, cash flow targeted investors with responsible leverage, durable recurring income streams. And we thought storage was a good vehicle to do that. Um, our adaptive reuse retail deals, you know, going back to the scale theme, there's, all, there's only so many cool old warehouses around a, a given town, in our case, Denver, that you can pick over and renovate and demise and put multi-tenant experience-based retail in there. Uh, but storage is a lot more scalable. It's kind of the same business, whether you're in Denver, 
or you're in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so we just kind of evolved over time and, and really getting into that business was, um, and the scale that we got into the business was sort of accidental and not intentional uh, initially. So we shifted from being transactional investors to more long-term holder investors. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of how a lot of the journeys go, right? I mean, I started on single family homes at a very small scale, owned a few of them. And it was just, yeah, like you said, it was very transactional. I had to keep repeating the same thing over and over. And then now I'm in, you know, I I eventually went to multifamily, which is a little bit less transactional. And then I just dumped all the active stuff. And now I'm completely passive, which, you know, that kind of goes for the long-term hold that you're talking about. So I think that that journey makes sense to me. I guess the, the question is, when when we talk to self about self storage, recession resistant is one of the terms that almost always comes up, right? And I've been hearing lately from a couple of you know fairly large operators in the space that you know maybe that's not the case this time. Maybe it's overbuilt, or maybe there's um, there's some issues that that it might not be as recession resistant as as we think for the and who knows what the economy is going to do maybe it'll be soft landing maybe it won't but we're in we're in uncertain times we might be coming in rocky roads how is self storage going to perform do you think is it going to hold up as that recession resistant asset class well you've got these you've got these macro statistics you've got micro statistics and just like any real estate asset class storage is very localized right some markets have performed better than others if you want to talk about it on a national perspective, um, street rates are down about 10% year over year. So asking rates are lower than they were. Um, and physical occupancies that the REITs are reporting are down uh, 200 to 300 basis points, depending on the REIT year over year. So you've had a decline in street rates. You've had a decline in physical occupancies. And really what we think is happening right now is you're, you're coming down from an irrational untenable peak in consumer demand. Uh, demand went through the, the roof in the quarters following COVID. People were clearing out their third bedrooms uh, to work from home. They wanted that home office. And historically, storage has been very seasonal. And that seasonality, again, just kind of went out the window during the, the last couple of years, really leading up to, I would say, kind of middle of 22. Um, so what we're seeing nationwide, I think, is a, is a return to kind of a normalization in consumer demand. Um, peaks and troughs of seasonality are returning. Um, and the people that are uh, wanted those third bedrooms for home offices are now being called back to work. Uh, they don't need the storage anymore. So it's it's lightened up for sure. Um, as, as it relates to oversupply, um, there are a number of markets in the country, you can say, that are heavily oversupplied. And there are others that are undersupplied. Again, it's really kind of market specific. Um, Denver, for example, had a lot of oversupply in 2017. Rates went down, occupancies went down. Um, but Denver has now swung the other direction. It's very undersupplied, which is why we're building a few development projects in Denver. So to actually answer your original question, how is it going to weather the storm? I think there's going to be some duress in the asset class for the same reasons there's going to be duress in multifamily and industrial and retail People were buying deals with untenable, unreasonable underwriting assumptions. They were buying deals with floating rate debt, short-term bridge debt. They're going to grow an OI. They're going to refinance into a fixed rate loan at a three and a half. Pull proceeds. They're going to be heroes. Um, well, no one, well, no one thought, including us, uh, that rates would go up as high as they did and as quickly as they did. If you originated a floating rate loan back in uh, 2021, for example, your interest rates probably tripled, 
uh, depending on what the floating rate loans indexed against. And you might have hit your NOI growth targets and your revenue growth targets, um, but your interest rates tripled, your cost of capital is tripled, roughly. So I think there's going to be some duress in the market for all those reasons. Um, you've got the you've got the uh, the factor of of normalizing consumer demand. You've got deals that were bought with really compressed cap rates, aggressive revenue growth assumptions, floating rate loans. So there's going to be some pain, um, and it's hard to, to to relate sort of future recessions or economic downturns to past ones because it feels like the last three or four it's been such a different set of fundamentals that's caused these downturns. Um, so what's it going to be this time? We've been talking about a recession for over a year, right? Where's the recession? Unemployment's way down. Wage growth is good. The stock market suffered a little bit, but um, where's the recession? And historically, when there's a softening, when there's a downturn, the mobility of the consumer increases and storage demand increases. So we're not sure how it's going to go. We're just being very cautious. Uh, we're watching our numbers more carefully than, than ever in our portfolio. Um, we're not seeing a lot of deals that we love. We only like to buy deals we love. So it's kind of a it's a time for... Uh, I think opportunities coming, but I think it's a time for extreme caution uh, in the interim. And, you know, you mentioned if something is oversupplied or undersupplied in a market. How do you determine that? Is that the number of cars that drive by an intersection type metrics or what, what are you looking at to determine, hey, that, you know, Denver's undersupplied. Let's let's jump in with a development deal that might take, you know, six months to a couple of years to to develop, I would assume, as opposed to well, maybe Memphis is oversupplied because of X, Y, Z. How, how do you, what metrics do you use to calculate that or to, to estimate that? Yeah, it's a it's an art and a science and it's kind of market by market. So generally, uh, I guess on average across the country, there's about eight square feet per capita of self-storage in the US. And historically, if you're in a market that's well over eight square feet per capita, you could argue it's oversupplied and under eight square feet per capita is undersupplied. Well, some markets can sustain higher supply ratios because their rents are lower. So if you have cheap rents, more of the population can afford to store. So that submarket can um, support a higher number of facilities and a higher supply ratio than a market with really high rents. So when we're making an acquisition decision or a development decision for that matter, we're looking at what are the submarket and kind of MSA supply ratios um, and where are the supply ratios at right now so maybe Denver's got X square feet per capita. We're looking at doing a deal in a submarket of Denver. It's got Y square feet per capita. Is that square foot per capita higher or lower than the average of the MSA? So that's a consideration. Um, we're also looking at the subjective and the objective risk of the introduction of new supply. So how likely is it that someone could build a competing facility a few miles down the road from you? What's the zoning like? Um, is there available land that's appropriately zoned for storage? Um, if you're if you're buying deals in a low barrier to entry development environment, your risk of new supply is high. If you're buying deals in an environment where it takes two years to get entitled, you have to get the property rezoned. I think the chances of someone building a competing property near you uh, are much lower. So we're looking at supply ratios. We're looking at the risk of the introduction of new supply. Um, and then finally, we're looking at rents. Uh, what can we rent these units for if it's an existing facility? Um, where are rents currently at on a 10 by 10 or a 10 by 15? Where are competing rents at? And is there a story to make the facility better and bring those customers up to market rates over time? But the, the main risks in storage outside of real estate risks like cap rates, interest rates, 
are are supply. Uh, that's your that's your big risk factor. Very supply sensitive. Okay, and and then you you also mes- mentioned uh, leverage. You know, what, so what would you say is reasonable leverage now, as opposed to maybe reasonable leverage a couple of years ago? And the floating rate debt. If if someone is in a deal that has floating rate debt, right? There's what what do you do now? Like, well, what does an operator do? They need to just really push NOI and try to outpace it, or are you just sunk? What what what's the solution, or is there one? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a multi multi part question. I'll start with the first component. Um, debt is debt doesn't make a bad deal good. Debt makes a good deal better. So when leverage is used responsibly and bring being brought to bear in a responsible manner, it's going to increase your returns because you're using bank money. You have a fixed cost on that. Debt's cheaper than equity. The problem with that is you have to pay it back, right? Even if the deal doesn't go well, you've got a mortgage payment and you've got a loan. You have to eventually uh, return to the bank and pay off to the bank. Um, in this environment, um, so for example, our fund three portfolio, we've got 11 assets, about 80 million in total capitalization. Our leverage is about 62% loan to cost. Um, not loan to value, but loan to cost. I think loan to cost is much more pure than value. LTV, like whose V is it, right? Is it the appraiser? Is it the broker? Is it ours? Cost is much more pure. Um, our development projects were leveraging between 50 to 55% on cost. Um, and these, these leverage amounts are probably roughly five points lower than they were back when rates are really, really low in say 2021. So a little bit lower loan amounts just to kind of lessen the burden of that higher debt service and that higher cost of capital. Um, to return to the, the second component of your question, what do you do if you're in a floating rate loan? Well, I'll speak to that in a moment, but one of the problems if you are in a floating rate loan and you're maturing pretty soon, especially, is you probably thought, not because you're stupid, but just because no one thought this would go as high as fast as it did. You probably thought, okay, I'll get this floating rate loan. I'm not going to buy a rate cap because I don't have to worry about that. I'll stress my interest rate on a perm loan or a term loan at, say, 4.5% when rates were at 35 um, I'll grow NOI over time. I'll refi, say, in Q2 of 23. I'll return some capital to my investors. I'll have fixed rate debt, and off we go. Well, you can't refi. And the reason for that, well, you can, I guess, but the reason you'd be challenged to refinance a floating rate loan, number one, lenders have pulled back on their proceeds substantially. So if loan to cost before for the given lender was 70, now they're down to 60 or whatever the spread might be. Um, Secondly, the rate you're going to refinance into that term debt um, may not support from a coverage ratio perspective, the NOI you have on that property. So most of us listening probably know what a debt service coverage ratio is, but lenders like to generally see your NOI be about 25% higher than your annual debt service. So if your interest rate uh, went up twice as high as you thought it would, um, you're going to have a trouble covering that from a loan amount perspective. So what's that's going to do? What that's going to do is it's going to push down your loan proceeds. So you could be in a position where you have to bring equity to the table to refinance out of that floating rate loan. Uh, other options are you could sell the property. You may not be able to sell it for what you thought you could because other buyers are looking at their spreadsheets saying, gosh, you know, this is my interest rate. I can't pay you this price because I, I can't make my returns work at 7% versus say four. Um, 
other options too is you can get an extension with your lender potentially. Um, really, the, these floating rate loans, if you haven't bought a rate cap, but you've got some maturity runway, uh, if you can kind of hang on and let things moderate back down, you might be in good shape. But these maturities are causing a lot of borrowers to be underwater. Um, and we're only seeing the beginning of it. So I think there's going to be, if you've got some cash and you've got some staying power, I think acquisition and opportunities in the real estate space are going to be a lot more interesting by Q2 of 24 than they are right now. Uh, you look at the math and it just kind of has to, has to go that way. You can't, you can't have uh, valuations at a stabilized four cap and finance at a seven. Something's got to give. Now, when you when you said uh, lender extensions, um, you know I'm assuming, and I've heard I've heard some talk about you know lenders don't want to own a self storage facility or a multifamily property. So you know where maybe in in what 08 when it was single family homes and the bank ended up owning a bunch of those, especially since they're working with commercial businesses, they don't want to be the owner of all these things. So they're more apt to work out loans and and offer extensions and decrease interest rates for a while, all these little workarounds. Are you, is that something you're seeing? Do you think that's realistic that that some of this might be, some of these distressed properties might be saved a little bit by the banks being a little bit more flexible? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, back in 08, uh, if you wanted help from a lender, good luck, right? There was nothing you could do. Um, in, in COVID, we didn't need any help, but we had our lenders reaching out to us asking, do you want a payment deferral? Do you want to convert from amortizing interest only? Um, and I think right now it's kind of somewhere in between to a degree. Lenders will do what they can for you, uh, but they're also, they can also just say, hey, let me read my loan docs here. Well, it looks like your loan matures. If you don't pay it off, then we're going to have some recourse on you. Um, I think, I think the most dangerous partner that a real estate operator can have is a lender that's in duress. If the lender is not in duress, they can work with you. They can extend, they can modify your loan. They could maybe push that maturity date back. If that lender is being examined by regulators or, or that lender has had a downgrade with, uh, with S and P or Moody's and they've got some stress on their balance sheet, um, they're, they're going to be forced to maybe even call your loan due, uh, if you don't do anything wrong, they just feel like they're they're not safe with your loan with your loan amount and your position. So yeah, don't rely on your bankers to save you by any means. But if you have a good relationship and a floating rate debt maturity coming up, it's always worth the conversation. Accredited investors, listen up. Are you looking to invest in a time-tested asset class with an experienced operator? Then GSP REI is here for you. GSP REI is a vertically integrated real estate investment company specializing in single-family affordable and workforce rental housing. Through their in-house construction and property management, GSP REI has been able to consistently generate high yields for their investors. Whether you're looking for predictable monthly income or long-term growth, GSP REI has fund offerings to fit your passive investing needs. To learn more about GSP REI and explore their fund offerings, visit their website at gsprei.com. That's gsprei.com. Hi, this is Zach Hapenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. 
To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you. So if I'm an L, I, well, I'm an LP, right? So if I'm investing or thinking about analyzing a deal, should I be asking the operator, you know, because a lot of times they, they might not even have the loan finalized when they send out the pitch deck, but should we be asking, hey, what bank are you using and then do our own due diligence on that bank? Or is that is that something more that we just need to rely on the operator to to handle that? Yeah, I don't think the diligence should so much be done on the bank. I think the diligence should, should be done more than ever on the terms of the loan the operator is going to use to finance the project. Um, is it floating rate? Is it fixed? What's the interest rate? Um, what's the leverage from a loan to cost perspective? And does the project still pencil from a return perspective with this increased interest rate environment? Um, a lot of our investors, um, not because they're not smart people, they are, but a lot of them weren't asking much about debt two or three years ago. And now right. a lot of them, that's one of the first questions they ask, how are you financing your projects? Tell me about the loan terms. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to understand if you're considering investing in a single asset syndication or, or a fund vehicle. That's, that's where a lot of the risk is right now is debt. And, and other than, than debt, I, I understand there's a lot of risk there, but that, you know, so it's uncertain, the economy, right? We don't, the interest rates are uncertain, taxes are going up, um, insurance is going up. So what should LPs consider when they're investing in self-storage these days? Obviously, the operator, obviously debt, but maybe expand on that a little bit. What else or what what specific things in those categories should we look at? Yeah, I mean, those are those are easy ones. Uh, diligence on the operator, track record, how they performed um, with bad deals. It's always a good question to ask. Don't tell me about your home runs. I don't care. Tell me about your worst deals. Like what happened? Why? How did you work your way through it? Um you know, I'm biased when I say this, but I do think that self-storage is a good place to circle the wagons right now. And there's a couple of reasons we think it's downside protected, notwithstanding the supply ratio risk, the risk of interest rates and cap rates. Um, we're relying on thousands of customers to pay us tiny amounts of rent every month on a unit by unit basis. So we're not beholden to one massive user with a big revenue stream. And the chances that a large number of those customers will roll over at the same time are pretty low. We've got people paying us 30 to $300 a month. We have 18,000 units. Um, so I think that granularity of the revenue stream uh, is one way the asset class is kind of downside protected. Um, but I think whether you're investing in storage or you know, any other private um, fund vehicle, multifamily, industrial, uh, you got to ask yourself, what are your financial goals? Um, do you want to get in and get out quickly for a high IRR and a low multiple? Do you want to hang on for a long time for cash flow and enjoy the depreciation and see some capital appreciation over time? Um, I would caution people to get into deals these days that are relying on a short-term exit to make the return make sense. Um, deals that uh, you bought in 20 that you were going to exit in 22, uh, that probably went okay. Right. If you built an apartment building or you bought a storage facility and you sold it fast, uh, the tailwinds you saw were compressing cap rates and rising rents and very cheap cost of capital. Um, well, today, if you're buying a deal and expecting to sell it by late 24 or 25, that might not be a good time horizon to expect. So if you're investing, I think, in, in equ equity and real estate these days, you should expect to be in, in for the longer haul. And maybe you get a faster round trip than you expect. But um, this is this is an environment where there's opportunity, but don't rely on short-term sales for sure. 
And and is if an LP is analyzing the self storage deal and its value add, um, what what the, what should we be looking for there? Is it important that the you know there's vacant land that can be developed and built? What kind of different value add is there? Is it just hey, let's throw a um, a U-Haul on there and sell some locks. Is that significant or is that enough of a value add? Or do you need to, you know, get rid of all the employees and, and put make everything computerized? Like I know there's a lot of different value adds, but how does an LP analyze, yeah, this is this one makes sense, this one doesn't? Or what, what should we be looking for for value add? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated analysis and storage. Um, part of the reason it's complicated is you've got, on a given deal, let's say you have 500 units. And those units, every one of those units is its own product type. So, for example, a 10 by 10 by the front door that's really easy to access is going to command a pricing premium versus a 10 by 10 that's in the back of the building. So you're looking at all these granular revenue streams that are month to month leases. They've got seasonality and you're forecasting out how you can add value by growing revenue, controlling expenses and obviously increasing NOI. So I think the first thing you should look at as an LP on you know whether the value add component makes sense is are the underwriting assumptions of the sponsor or the operator, are they reasonable and achievable? What what assumptions are they bringing to bear to grow NOI in year one, two, and three? Uh, are they showing a, a 50% NOI growth uh, trajectory on a deal they bought at 80% occupancy? That's probably too high. Um, if you're growing NOI at 50% in the first year or two on a lease up deal, that might make sense, right? Because you're starting from a, either a low or a negative starting point. If it's empty, it's really easy to go up from there, right? Um, but I think the, the big cautionary tale right now in storage is what you normally look at are T12 rents on a given uh, submarket and a given facility. And you normalize those T12 rents and you make a decision based on what those rents have been and where you think you can take them to based on what the market's doing. Well, Can you explain T12 real quick, just so everyone's on the 12. same page? Look at rents in the last year. Look at rents in the submarket the last 12 months. Well, look at how much has changed with consumer demand over the last 12 months. So when we're making an acquisition decision today and we're underwriting a deal, we're not going back much further on rents than a few months. So we're looking at data points today. Um, so, for example, we're buying a deal in Lakeland, Florida in about a month. And it's near one of our fund three assets. And... Um, the deal's been around for a little while. Occupancies are in the mid to high 70s. In year one, we're underwriting an immediate 8% reduction in rents just to account for kind of this continued softening until it sort of bottoms out. So that's the cautionary tale now is you can't look at rents a year ago and say, that's my benchmark and I'm going to go into a deal with that assumption because they've gone down and consumer demand is definitely softened compared to a year ago. Um, so the data points in the history needs to be much more recent uh, these days than it's ever been in the past. And would you say when we're looking overall at self-storage, you know, you said there was a spike COVID because of all the things that were happening. But if, if you look pre-COVID and then post-COVID and maybe take that bubble out, is it is it still kind of a, a line up and to the right? Is it still a growth asset? It just had a little a bubble. So even though we're coming down, we're maybe still above where we were in 19, 2018, that kind of thing? Yeah, we are above where we were in 18 and 19. And you're exactly right. If you normalize it, it's a steady state kind of lower left to top right bar or line. It's not um, It's not going up exponentially. It's not going down. You've got the noise of the pandemic years with rent growth and NOI growth. Um, but, you know, even though we didn't 
know what the future held, and certainly we can't predict the future, we knew that this was fairly unsustainable, right? You can't see same-store NOI growth of 30% in a given year and expect that to happen again and again and again in the future, right? It's got to come back down to earth. But uh, yeah, it's still well over what where it was in 19, for sure. And um, so you you do fund model, right? So can you talk about the benefits of the fund to the operator, the benefits to the LP, and maybe some some downsides as well. Just kind of why why a fund rather than individual deals? How does that help you? How does that help the LP? Yeah, um, we've got just over three hundred million in assets under management across forty facilities, including two development projects. Um, most of those deals are in um, our three funds: Fund One, Two, and Three. Fund Three is currently underway and closing out at the end of this year. And then we've got uh, a number of those deals that are in single asset syndications uh, across our asset base. Again, most of them are in our funds, though. Um, and to kind of keep it basic initially, um, a single asset syndication fundamentally is similar to a fund. Uh, the main difference is it's one deal. So it's it's one LLC, it's one property, um, you're investing in one location. A fund, again, fundamentally is similar to a syndication, but a fund is a collection of assets. So if you're in a multifamily syndication, you're buying that apartment stock. If you're in a multifamily fund, you're kind of buying a mutual fund in multifamily. So the advantage to, I'll start with the LP side. Um, the advantage to LPs on a single asset syndication, I think, is mainly if you're an investor that doesn't like to be part of kind of a, a strategy and you want to be part of a specific deal that you can street view, you can kind of pick and choose the markets you want to be in. Um, it might be better for you to be a single asset syndication investor because you can maybe you maybe uh, you're looking at a fund that's in North Carolina and Florida. Um, you like Florida, you don't like North Carolina though. So if you're focused on syndications, you can more geographically curate your portfolio. Um, the downside though, to a degree, for LPs in a syndication, is that the deal doesn't go well or, or it's underperforming. There's no other sources of value creation to shore up that deal. So if you have a development project that's going busto and it's a single asset syndication, there's no other sources of revenue outside of that deal's sources of revenue that can kind of offset um, some of that uh, unexpected negative performance. Um, whereas a fund, we'll start with advantages of the fund first and the disadvantages. A fund, um, you're inherently getting more geographic and cash flow diversification in a multi-property asset base than, of course, you are in a single single asset syndication. So out of, say, 20 deals in a given quarter in a fund, um, two or three of those, whatever the number is, inevitably will be behind forecasts from an NOI perspective, an occupancy perspective. Maybe there was a lumpy wheel repair that had to be done, um, but they're balanced out by the other 17 or 18 deals in that 20-property fund that are on or ahead of forecast. So if you end up buying a dog in a fund, we don't have any dogs in our funds, but we might. It might turn out we bought a couple dogs in a few years. Those dogs aren't dragged down very much and they're not as um, impactful uh, because they're short up with other deals that are performing. Uh, the main disadvantage, disadvantages, I should say, to, uh, to a fund vehicle as a limited partner um, will certainly listen to you, but you don't have any legal say in the types of deals we're buying and where uh, in the markets we go into. Um, and the other downside to it, which isn't a huge downside, is you might have to file multiple state tax returns. Um, some operators offer composite filing options. We do the same in states we, we, we can. Um, but if you're putting in 50K 
and you're having to file state level tax returns in, in 10 different states, um, that's going to be a, a big erosion of your, your cash return by the pay your CPA. So yeah, really syndications, um, you can pick and choose your deals more accurately, but it doesn't go well. That's all you got. Um, funds, you're, you're kind of along for the ride a little bit more. Uh, the operator's kind of making decisions on where to buy, but you're inherently more diversified from a, a geographic and, and cash flow perspective. And you mentioned state tax returns and at left field investors that, you know, in our, in our private forums, that's, that's been a, a discussion. And, you know, talking to my CPA, he basically says, you know, we don't have a whole lot of those, even though I have a lot of syndications, a lot of places, you know, if you're investing 50 grand in a deal and there's two locations in, I don't know, South Carolina and, it, you know, your the returns you've gotten or the distribution you've gotten are so small that you're probably not filing tax returns there anyway. You're probably under the minimum. So it seems to me this is one of those things that is much talked about, but in reality, it's not that huge of a deal. And the composite tax return on the operator end is always a nice bonus. But for me, yeah. I don't think it's required when I, I invest. Do you, do you agree that it, it maybe isn't as huge of a deal as it, as it feels like it could be? Well, I'm not trying to sound flippant, but I absolutely agree with you. It, it is, uh, and there's so many different nuances based on the state. Uh, as we know, some states don't have state level income tax. So don't worry about Florida, right? Don't worry about Texas um, or Wyoming for that matter. We get a few deals in Wyoming. Um, in other states, um, after depreciation, your adjusted gross income from that state, from the fund, from that deal in the fund in that state is so de minimis that it may not even require you to file a tax return anyway. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that kind of people make a big deal out of and between all these different nuances on, on, um, you know, state level income tax, uh, the threshold of adjusted gross income for filing and then the offering of composite filings, um, it doesn't end up being a huge impact or expense or time suck on your CPA. Um, right. And my, my thought is when the deal closes and it sells, then perhaps, you have to file that return, but then you're not talking about the return costing $200 on you made $400. It might be the return cost 200 bucks and you made five grand or 20 grand. So maybe that's, that's lessened. Uh, yeah. One other question, sorry, one, one other question I do want to ask is that the timing, right? You said your fund is closing in, in December. Um, I don't know when it opened, but some people think, hey, you got to invest right away at the beginning of the fund so you can get all the benefits of, of the fund. Others say, well, if you invest early, you're not getting any returns early, so just wait to the last minute. I, I'm sure you don't want people waiting to the last minute, but if you could put your LP hat on, what's the, what, is there a better time to, to invest in a fund, or is it just, hey, when, when you have the capital and you find the deal, you, you just jump in? Yeah, it's, um, it, it depends on how the fund's structured. And the best example I can use is our fund. It's, it's fairly simple. Um, there are two differences to investors um, who might have come in on day one versus the last day of the fund. And they're pretty simple. Um, the first difference is they're accruing less preferred return uh, by virtue of the fact they've been in the fund for less amount of time. Uh, and then secondly, we prorate depreciation based on when someone comes into the fund during our deployment period. So for example, if an LP comes, on, comes in on 1231, it's probably not fair as getting the entire year of depreciation when somebody else came in on January 1st. So those are the only two differences economically uh, from a timing perspective on how LPs are treated, whether it's earlier or later in the fund. Um, one of the disadvantages in a fund coming in early um, is you, you're not sure what the fund's going to buy. Maybe you come in on the first the, the fund's first deal or two. The fund intends to buy 20 deals. 
you don't have a lot of performance history. It's kind of early on, but the advantage you have is you're accruing pref faster than somebody else who comes in later and you have more depreciation. Um, the advantage of coming at the end of the fund is if the fund's about to close and it's not buying more deals, you're investing in an asset base that's seeded and it's quantifiable. So you can get a fit, you can get a flavor for the fund's portfolio. You've got some operational performance history. Um, and you kind of have a better idea of what you're buying into. But your disadvantage, of course, is you're coming in with less accrued preferred return and less prorated depreciation. So it kind of depends on the fund's terms and strategy. But uh, like anything, there's advantages and disadvantages to being the first in or, or the or the last in. Yeah, I, I, that, that was very well explained. I've asked that question a number of times. And that might be the clearest uh, answer I've gotten. So thank you for that. Um, so <laughs> sure. the last question I like to ask is what what's a great podcast that you listen to? Gosh, um, I've uh, I, I've listened to a number of uh, historic podcasts. I'm a big history guy, but that's probably okay. not applicable to a to a real estate show. Um, I like uh, I like the Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, that's a, that's an easy cop out, but that's that's one I listen to pretty consistently. Yeah, I I listen to those for a while. They're just so long. It's hard. It's hard for me to do it. I like the I like the quick hits. <laughs> you really you really got to commit to it's it's a road trip podcast for sure. And yeah, same with some exactly. of like the bigger Joe Rogan uh, interviews. Uh, yeah, it, this it can't be on a on a ten minute drive to the office. You got to you got to be committed. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so, um, if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about Van West, what, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, we always love to talk shop about real estate. Uh, folks can email me. Jacob at vanwestpartners.com. They can go to our website, vanwestpartners.com, or hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was fantastic. We, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Jim. We appreciate Left Field. Take care. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of Left Field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the Left Field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. I enjoyed the conversation with Jacob. A couple of things he said stuck out to me. He was talking about flipping houses and how he started was overly transactional. And I, I totally get that. I wasn't doing the types or the frequency of transactions he was, but he wanted more long-term sustainable type projects. And so moving to syndications and self-storage where you're not doing these one-offs uh, make just makes sense. 
And he talked about self-storage being very localized. And that's a lot of the real estate. You hear people talking about the real estate market and how rents are down and or whatever it is, but it is always hyper-localized in reality. But these numbers that people are talking about are nationally, or even if you're talking about a specific market, you got to drill down to the sub-markets. So if something is overbuilt or something is overpriced, or you hear about these trends, that doesn't mean if one individual operator is operating in one specific market that it is it isn't different there because it probably is different than the national. So that was interesting to talk about. And of course, responsible leverage that um, that is something that is really important now. It was important, you know, two years ago, but no one was really talking about it, and now they are, and that's a good thing. And I really liked how he described the. DSCR, right? Debt service coverage ratio. And I haven't heard it explained like this before. And for some reason, some of these um, are, are difficult for me to like get in my head, right? And he said, it's when NOI, net operating income, is 25% greater than your interest payment or your debt service. That is a healthy DSCR, right? And that's the 1.25. If you look at our deal analyzer tool that Left Field Investor has for infielders, we have DSCR in there, but that description of, hey, it's 25% greater than the than the service, um, the debt service. I don't know what, but that just clicked with me. It's a great explanation, so I appreciated that. You know, one of his tips for talking to an operator, we've heard this before, but I, I think it bears repeating. Tell me about your worst deal, because everyone always wants to talk about your best deal. Tell me about something that didn't work out or you had difficulties with, and how did you overcome that? That's the kind of stuff you want to hear about. Lastly, he was talking about self-storage and one of the things he likes about it is you have a lot of small revenue streams. And that's kind of how I think of my own passive investing. I don't want to be all in with one operator or all in in one market. I want all these little little revenue streams coming in. And that's the same kind of concept with self-storage. So one person moves out or even a bunch of people move out, that's not going to crush you because you have so many different revenue streams. So again, great talking to him. He certainly knows what he's talking about in self-storage world. Appreciated the interview. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.